um, so, well, I, uh, I, I agree. I, when, when I listen to David, I feel like I need to be two people, kind of spell each other, do a sense at a time. <laughs> it's a lot, a lot to keep track of. I'll talk nice and slow for us. I, I, uh, <laughs> you got your southern drawl. That's that southern drawl. I'm not, not in a hurry. Right. <laughs> nowhere to be um okay all right so uh we we're gonna um we've tracked down our bibles and uh um just whatever translation you have on hand um and let's see so um we're gonna we're gonna read the passage in in three chunks this evening um so we'll we'll read um one to nine 10 to 15 and then, and then 16, 16 to 30. Um, and the plan is to, uh, so I'll do something of a close reading. I'll draw out what I find uh, interesting, challenging, perplexing in the text. Um, and then I'll have a question after each chunk for us to chew on together. Um, and if you have any questions or thoughts, we'll open it up after each uh, segment for five to seven, five to seven minutes. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to open us with uh, with the collect that's used for the feast day of Saint John the Evangelist. So let us pray. Shed upon your church, O Lord, the brightness of your light that we being illumined by the teaching of your apostle and evangelist John may so walk in the light of your truth that at length we may attain to the fullness of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. All right. Well, I'm. Um, it's great to be together this evening. I'm. I'm honored to be uh, reading uh, this esteemed gospel in such esteemed company. Um, I have to say, uh, I'm not going to throw my wife under the bus. Never mind. Well, <laughs> she. Uh, Amor Tolls is giving one of her favorite authors, who wrote a gentleman in Moscow, is giving mm. a talk this evening at seven. And uh, so uh, my wife chose Tolls over Yates, um, yeah. and, uh, but I'm glad you guys all have made the right decision and we're all here and this is, this is wonderful. Um, that's, a, that's a very good book. It is. Moscow. Is book. Not quite the Gospel of John, but still, no. still pretty good. Still pretty good. <laughs> All right, so so my my plan for this evening, um, I've just said we'll read it in three chunks, um, uh, and I'm going to do something of some introductory remarks um, on on how I see this gospel working uh, and playing out in my own imagination, um, and then we'll see we'll see how far we get. Gosh, I had so much fun digging into this text, and uh, so if we only get five verses in, that'll that'll be all right. Um, okay, so who wrote the Gospel of John? Well, the um, the tradition says um, I'm just going to hit record. Christina, will you record? 
just so people can. Um... We are. Oh, we are. Great. Um, and just so everybody knows, it'll be audio only that gets posted. No, no pictures. <laughs> so, so tradition, tradition has it that the beloved disciple, John, um, John, uh, the, uh, the evangelist wrote this gospel. Um, uh, scholars, um, have differing opinions on when exactly this gospel uh, came to be. It's a tricky question because there are elements of the gospel that um, suggest an earlier date and there are elements of the gospel that suggest a much later date. Um, if you were to just pick up uh, a, a given commentary off the shelf, you're likely gonna see 90 AD, between 90 and 100 AD. Mm. Um, some, some scholars will push it later to 120, 130, 40. Um, it's interesting to me. I, um, I'll, I'll say why I think a later date or at least sources from a later date um, uh, come down to us in, in this gospel. You know, when I, was a, when I was a kid, well, when I was in high school and studying John for the first time, the, the kind of mental image I had in my head was, um, of old, old John kind of sitting at his desk as an old man writing down the last flickering memories of his rabbi for the next generation to, uh, to absorb and study. Um, so if, if, if this gospel were written in 90 AD, imagine that puts John at 80, 85 years old. If it's written in 100, he's even older. Um, so for some reasons, again, that I'll, I'll get into, I, I, I'm inclined more to think of this gospel as emerging from a community, um, what we could call the Joannine community. Um, uh, I think John, like his rabbi, like his teacher became, um, a teacher became a leader of a school, uh, and, and gathered some some disciples around him to, to pass along the teachings of, of Jesus. The image that I'm kind of, that I've been playing around with this last week is to think about John as, um, as a university professor, maybe, maybe a, um, maybe a scholar who's overseeing um, master's theses. And, and in John's seminar um, called Jesus, the life of, he's got, let's say 12 or 15 students in the seminar. And he gives his students the task, they're all writing a master's dissertation. <laughs> and the topic is Christ and dot, dot, dot. Um, I think he's asking them, I think they're all writing a master's thesis on Christ and culture. Um, so this is a later gospel. I think the early Christians have had more time to reflect on uh, Jesus and conversation and culture. So he's got these students, they're, they're interested in all of these various things as, as these academics are. Uh, and so I imagine, again, let's be playful, but I think historically this I, it works a little bit. Um, he's got a student or two that gets really interested in Christ and the temple. Um, 
we know the temple from Dr. Hill's talk the first week figures looms large in this gospel. He's got another student that gets interested in Christ and the sacraments. They're thinking much more about the, uh, the local church body. Maybe he's got um, a student that gets interested in Platonism, um, reading, reading the books of Plato, putting Jesus in conversation with high, high Platonism. He probably had a student or two that was interested in Gnosticism. Christ and Gnosticism, that early first, second century esoteric movement within Judaism and Christianity. So I think John's very impressed with all of his students' work. They bring back their theses to him and he loves them all. They all get A's and he says, great, we got to make them all work. It's all got to come into this story of Jesus. And so you've got this kind of rich tapestry of different conversations, of different master's theses um, flowing into this gospel. And I think it, it makes it such a, it, it's what makes it such a rich gospel, makes it challenging as you try to figure out what conversation or thread or master's thesis you're reading. Um, master's theses aren't always clear. Go read, go read mine on Bonhoeffer. Um, uh, but um, when we run up against a text that doesn't make a lot of sense or we struggle with, we should think about what theses we're reading and maybe we should shift gears and think about another one. Um, okay, that's just an idea to try on. That's just an image. Um, okay. It, uh, uh, Christina just messaged me that my volume shifts out pretty bad when I step back from the computer. Is that is that everyone's experience? I would say it's not going back, but there you do sometimes die out, as you did a moment ago. But then you came back full bore, so you. Okay, all right, I'll 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 lean in. I'll lean in. Um, <laughs> all right, so um, so we've got these different theses. We'll talk about different theses to to read the story of John four. Look, my hope is that the Samaritan woman for us this evening comes half alive as Nicodemus did last week for us. Um, it's one of the great stories in the Gospel of John. It's one of the great stories in the New Testament. Um, as you've gathered, I don't think John, I think John, again, is compiling these theses. John's not all that interested in, in historical chronology. He's not interested in getting A, B, and C in a linear timeline. Um, I think he's much more interested in telling, telling us a story that will be persuasive, um, compelling to our spirits. He says it in the last chapter. I've written this book. I've compiled this book that you might believe, um, that you might believe that Jesus is, is the Christ. So one of the first questions I have as I, as I open John 4, and I hope you have it open before you, is... Um, why this story here? I mean, suppose he could have edited and put this story later in the gospel. He could have put it first. He could have put it, uh, no reason, no reason uh, the editors might not have interpolated it to eight or nine. Um, 
So why this story here? Well, um, um, one of the things I'm curious about is how this, how the Samaritan woman is in conversation and dialectic with Nicodemus uh, that we read last week. Um, so how is John putting her in conversation with him? What are some of the consonances um, and contrapuntal points that we see in this story? I know we technically haven't read it yet, but I'm assuming you've, you're at least familiar. Um, obviously, we have a, a man and a woman. We have a Jew and a Samaritan. What else? I would imagine it's a position of power. Nicodemus was like like a, in the judging community, and this is just a gal, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So um, the religiously educated, someone who, um, you know, might have gotten her GED. How about this? How about um, Nicodemus is at night? This is smack dab in the middle of the day. Um, interesting that Jesus is alone with both. Disciples aren't there. Raises some interesting questions, how we know this is exactly how the conversation played out. Got language around water and birth. Language around sight, perceiving who Jesus is. She gets it. Nicodemus, well, it took him 20 chapters. Um, still got it. So it was a very, very um, compelling arc. So um, I'm just playing with um, why, why this story here. I think John, there are no mistakes in John's gospel. I, 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 you might say there are historical errors or inconsistencies. Fine. There are no mistakes. Um, so let's keep some of that in mind. I'm going to kind of put several different pots on the stove and we'll put them on simmer. And, um, and at the end, we'll, we'll step back and see, see what's emerged for us. So let's go ahead and dive into, um, into the text and, someone who has their text in front of them, just read John 1 to 9 for us, and everyone else can just follow along or, or listen. Go ahead, Gretchen. You're muted. muted. There we go. Oh, sorry. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized. He left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to the Samar Samaritan city called Sichar. Is that Sichar? Is that right? Yep. Sichar. Sychar, okay, near the plot of, land, of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. 
A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. Go through nine. Yes. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Great. Maybe you notice some um, differences in your translation, and um, you can just note those. Um, a lot of really interesting Greek words um, in these first nine passages, or these first nine verses, um, that will that we can we can dig into. Um, okay, so my question for us, the guiding question for these nine verses, is where. Um, where do you see a conversation like this playing out today? Where do you see a conversation like this playing out today? So I'm going to unpack this conversation. And um, my hope is to make it strange and shocking and different. Um, and and to, to draw out what I think are... Um, some of those subversive elements. I think it's a very subversive passage. Um, and then I'm going to ask us where we see that conversation today. All right. So um, the text says, um, well, it begins with some lines about uh, Jesus baptizing more than John. Interesting. That's probably not the original in the original text. Uh, the disciples, the, the school probably added that later to say, oh, no, no, no. John wasn't any better than Jesus. Um, but uh, but uh, that's one of the kind of source critical uh, comments that you'll that you'll hear. Um, but the text does say I'm not sure if, if I heard it in Gretchen's translation, but the text says he had to go to Samaria. He had to go to Samaria. Yes, the, the, but he um, had to go through Samaria, mine said. He had to go through Samaria. Perfect, perfect. He had to go. So um, the um, the word is is stronger in the Greek. I, I am reading the uh, New Jerusalem Bible. Um, uh, it says he had to pass through Samaria. The, the Greek word is actually, it was necessary. Mm -hmm. It was necessary for him to go through Samaria. Um which is interesting because what we know about the trek from Judea to Samaria, Judea to, um, where's he going? Galilee. Um, is, uh, well, Samaria is the shortest route. If it were, if it were an emergency, you know, we know from Josephus and others, if it were an emergency and you had to get home, you could go through Samaria. Um, but as a, as a Jew, um, likely you took the long way home. Uh, you, went, you went through the Jordan Valley and you skirted east along the Jordan River. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, what's our equivalent today? You don't drive through Waltham to get to Baltimore. I don't know. Um, you, uh, so you skirt east, you get up to, you don't go through Samaria. Um, interesting language here, he had to go. It was necessary. Mm -hmm. um, uh, why, why is that so? Um, okay, so what do we know about Samaritans? What do we know about Samaria? What do we know about Samaritans? Just quick kind of um, uh, um, 
thought associations, uh, any any stories in scripture, any anything that you remember from uh, Sunday school as a kid? Um, what do we know about Samaritans? Good Samaritan. Yeah, the story of the Good Samaritan. That's a great. Um, yeah. There was animosity between the Samaritans. Uh, yeah, the Samaritans and the, and the Jews. Yeah. They. Mm-hmm. They felt, I think, don't they, didn't they, they both claimed some, the, some area of some territory that they fought over? They did. Yeah, they did. Um, so the Samaritans and Jews, um, the, the, the irony and the punch of the good Samaritan is that there's no such thing as a good Samaritan. Uh, it's like saying a good Yankees fan. Um, you know, or something, something of that nature. There are no good Samaritans. Um, what we know about Samaria, this is interesting, and I think it really, uh, really tees up um, this passage. So S- Samaria um, was uh, to the north in the northern, in the northern kingdom. And uh, you may remember from Old Testament um, Bible studies, the North and the South were not on the same page on a lot of stuff. Um, The North in particular got harassed in the 8th century uh, BCE um, by the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians, um, to just gloss a lot of ancient history, um, the Assyrians were not very nice people. They were barbarians. They were... um, uh, awful. Um, you would not have wanted to have been on, on their uh, hit list. Well, so they start attacking, they start attacking the North, they're expanding their empire. Um, the, the prominent leader of the Assyrians uh, in the eighth century is um, one of my all-time favorite names in scripture, uh, uh, Tiglat Pileser III um, is, the, uh, is the Assyrian ruler. Um, Tiglat Pileser III. Um, so the Assyrians, what happens? They they attack Samaria. What they do is um, any good empire, you take you take the establishment, you take the religious elite, you take the political elite, you relocate them, you leave the poor, you leave the people who don't have social power to organize against the empire. You leave those there. So, um, and of course, they relocate others in their empire to Samaria. So what happens is Samaria becomes this kind of uh, multicultural Jewish, but a lot of other things, um, uh, um, uh, race. You might hear a Jew say it's, mm, it's, it's a bad language, but a kind of mongrel race. Um, it's a mixed race. Um, uh, and their religion becomes very syncretistic. Uh, they uh, worship Yahweh, Yahweh among the other gods, Yahweh among other foreign Mesopotamian Eastern gods. The Jews in the South, with their temple, with their orthodoxy, were not big fans of that. Well, the Assyrians wouldn't come south to the temple. They wanted their own temple up in their own region. Um and, uh, and, and so they built it. They built it on Mount Gerizim, um, where uh, the gospel for this evening takes place in the shadow of Mount Gerizim. Uh, 
Um, I could go on about the, the history here. I'll just say um, uh, the, the Samaritans um, in, the, in the third century assimilated themselves to um, Hellenism uh, and basically said, okay, we'll become Greek instead of being overtaken again. The Jews in the South said, no, 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 we're gonna stay strong. And you have the story of Maccabees, uh, if you've ever read Maccabees in the Apocrypha, it tells this story. Well, the Assyrians leave and they say, no, we're going we're gonna to disassociate ourselves from our Jewish identity. We don't, no, we don't, we don't need to, we don't need to be that. And, um, and, and so they assimilate, they even support um, the, the Syrian invasion of the South. Hang with me. It's touch, touch historical, maybe it's touch boring. Um, uh, so, so, so it really, things, tensions hit a fever pitch in 128 when uh, John Hyrcanus, a high priest um, of, uh, of Judea, decides to attack the temple and destroy it. Um, this temple of idolatry, this temple now dedicated to Zeus, among other gods, he burns it down. In 128, a Jewish leader goes north, tears it down. Mount Gerizim, the holy site of the Samaritans, is gone. So, that's a big event. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of animosity. As I said, that mountain loomed over the well where Jesus is having this conversation. Um, this is where Jesus decides to rest. It's a place of massive Samaritan trauma. It's a place of historical trauma. And the text says it was necessary for him to go through there. Um, interesting. A Samaritan, that's one thing. A woman? Ooh. Um, so we don't have to go into this. It's, it's um, women uh, did not have it good in the first century world. They were property. Um, their relationship was determined um, in their two functions, their husband and their ability to bear children. A long time till Mary Wollstonecraft comes along the scene. She wasn't there in the first century. It was tough. Um, Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. They did not talk to Samaritan women. For a rabbi to talk to a Samaritan woman uh, would really be to jeopardize his school, his reputation, his credentials. Um, it was a risky, risky endeavor. Um, so we have Jesus in conversation um, with her. Again, Jews see a Samaritan as perpetually unclean, um, a woman as perpetually unclean and impure. The gospel says that she came to the well in the, at the sixth hour. And that further corroborates the social shame, the, the pariah that she was, in that the sixth hour is at 12 noon. That's at the heat. That's the heat of the day. You wouldn't go to the well in the desert in the heat of the day. You'd go at 6 a.m. or 6 p.m. But she didn't want to see the other ladies in the town. She didn't want to become the butt of their jokes. Um, 
we should probably see her as the Hester Prynne of the first generation. She's got the A on her toga. She goes at noon because that's the only time she might not be mocked and laughed at. So there she is. Um, and Jesus had to go through there. Jesus says, give me a drink. Well, we wish he would have said, hi, I'm Jesus. Um, can you please give me a drink? Well, he just says, give me a drink. Well, that sounds, that sounds rude. We shouldn't, we shouldn't read that as, as, as rude. It's actually um, right here, quite subversive. Um, receiving the hospitality of an unclean person, drinking from the jars, the vessels that are unclean. Um, you don't do that. You don't do that if you're a, if you're a rabbi in the first century, um, not if you're Orthodox. Um, if I were preaching at an um, evangelism conference, I would really underscore this point receiving the hospitality of the outsider. Um, mm, but I'm not there. It's Thursday evening and uh, we're digging into the gospel. So Jesus asked for a drink. Just a kind of interesting aside here. Remember the last, second to last words in John's gospel, Jesus from the cross. He says, I thirst. Mm. I thirst. Give me a drink. And I, I, I wonder, fascinating, right? This well of living water. Thirsty. And I wonder in that last moment, if he thought back and he recalled the Samaritan woman and some of his last memories were of her. Give me a drink. Um, so Jesus right here. Um, transgressing boundaries of race, of gender, of history, of trauma, right here in the shadow of Mount Gerizim. Give me a drink. And she does. Well, she's, she's shocked. She's shocked that he's, he's talking to her. Of course she would be. But um, so I've laid the kind of foundations of this conversation, and hopefully you get a sense of just how weird and odd that it is. Um, and um, I think my question for, for us is, what, what would this conversation look like in the 21st century? Uh, I have a question. Do you, yeah. I, I don't know the answer to that, to your question, but um, why do you say that... Uh, she had to come to the well at noon because she didn't want to be seen by the other women. What was it about her that we learned from the gospel um, that was different? Because the other women were Samaritans from Samaria as well, right? Yeah. So I, I think I think the the well is kind of like Starbucks. Yeah. No, I understand that. Right? You know, um, but and everybody's got to go there eventually. Um, but, you know, you were saying that she didn't want to be, um, uh, you know, put down by the other women yeah. that would come there. And so I just was trying to figure out what there was about her 
it was different from the others, Marin? Oh, oh, sure, sure. Great question. Great question. So we will get into her checkered history in the next chunk. Um, okay. She, uh, she's not a very outstanding. Yeah, that it, it does go into that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. She's the Hester Prynne. She's not. She's not married to her husband, and yeah. she had five That's other ones. Right. So we'll we'll yeah, get into. I forgot that. about all that. Then yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. This conversation today. Where do you see it playing out? What's it look like? A Jew, a male Jew, and a Samaritan woman. Yeah, Suzanne. I'm on the racial justice committee and uh, group, and this just reminded me of that. Mm -hmm. I see that same back and forth of someone that's different, mm -hmm. perceived as different. Mm -hmm. Well, the fact that she's there at noontime is the, you know, why is she there at the new time? It could be a lot of reasons. And we, you know, we talk about not being with the other women because she is an outsider and she doesn't want to be there or maybe she's not allowed to be there with the other women. So she has to come out in the heat of the day to get her water rather right, than right. the women. You know, so so where, where do you see that today, Sandy? Well, I, I just see people not wanting to dwell into enemy territory. Mm. So this, this is a real uh, incursion into something that's radical that Jesus uh, is, is known, that we know Jesus for, you know, turning the tables upside down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That's really helpful. So something that um, that... I put together when you were talking about he, it was necessary to go through Samaria. It was necessary. So extending that it was necessary for, for Jesus to have this conversation. And I kept, I keep thinking of it as an act of reconciliation or the beginning of an act of reconciliation, particularly when you were talking about the trauma of their temple their you know, it, it may have felt pagan, to traditional Judaism, but it wasn't pagan to them. It was their form of celebration and, and worship. And, and she talks about, um, you know, this was, this is the home of Jacob and Joseph, and this mm -hmm. is our, this is our temple mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. later. So I don't have a specific answer to your question, but I was really struck by this being the first step of a reconciliation action of recognizing differences and, and living into those differences and saying, yes, we are different. And, you know, I know it's subversive for me to be having this conversation and this is, I need to do this. I need to initiate this conversation in order for a reconciliation to begin. It's, it's interesting, later in John's gospel, um, it's clear, and I think one of the master's theses is Christ in Samaria. I think it caused a lot of trouble in the Jewish, uh, in the Jewish um, milieu that they were in to insult Jesus. In John 8, they say, he's a Samaritan. He's got a devil. Mm -hmm. His associations were so close. 
um, that that he was he was taken for that identity. Powerful. Um, how about this? How about a Muslim and a Christian breaking bread at Ground Zero? How about a Protestant and a Catholic in Northern Ireland cheering a Guinness? I see it in a, in, a, in a slightly different context. I'm thinking in terms of the, you know, the climate, the, the racial justice thing and the, the traditional slaves or the traditional servant class and the masters. So uh, it's, it's like a white man telling a black woman, do this for me. Yeah. There's no compunction whatsoever. Yeah, I see it as a white black thing, yeah. yeah. Well, I, so I, I was trying to suggest to you guys that Jesus is not being a jerk. Now, I, I want to leave that option on the table. Um, because I think in John sometimes, and I think later in this, in this gospel, we're going to have even more reason to think he's a little brusque and he's, and he's still kind of sitting on his Jewish Orthodox Judaism. I want to say <laughs> rigid Judaism, uh, a little bit of a high horse, so we'll um, we'll we'll talk about that. But again, um, the boundary crossing conversation. Well, I I could I could bring up the thing uh, that I brought up this morning at the women's Bible study uh, that I read about in the uh, Wall Street Journal last weekend. It was a tribute to Vernon Jordan, and uh, Vernon Jordan had been shot by a white supremacist in 1980. And he was in the hospital for three months. Uh, and um, one of the first telegrams that he received or that he read was from George Wallace. And we probably all know that George Wallace was the governor of Alabama and a segregationist. George Wallace had been shot himself eight, eight years prior to this. And, uh, and he uh, was paralyzed from the waist down. And uh, a few years after uh, Vernon Jordan's um, uh, shooting, uh, he was at an event at which was also George Wallace. And George Wallace asked his person who was helping him to wheel him over to Vernon Jordan because he wanted to have a conversation with him, which they did have. And um, I guess that, I mean, I, th I think maybe yeah, the, the difference for George Wallace, uh, having had a life altering event in his life and being able to see the, uh, to, to see the humanity of a black person, to truly see the humanity. So anyway. Great example, it's a great example. Mm -hmm. um, okay, yeah. Dave, really, really quick, and then we got to keep going. All right, 15 I seconds. Go, I want to go back to where Lisa was, and I wanted to ask, why do you feel that Jesus had to go through here? Is he returning to some place that well in particular that he was very familiar with in an earlier part of life? Is he going back and trying to relive and to re-grasp his past in some way? Great question. Yeah. I think we should just sit with that. Is he reliving his past? Is he retrotting Israel's history? Is he 
just in a hurry to get to Galilee. <laughs> is he, um, is he on a divine mission? Exactly. Is he, was he the way the spirit threw him into the wilderness? Was he thrown through Samaria? Um, well, is, if he, he, is if he redoing? I mean, I, I think your, your question right there, is he trying to undo some of that trauma? Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. All right. So let's, um, so, so much more we could say about these nine verses. I almost don't even want to leave them. She's, uh, this woman is, is a powerhouse. She doesn't back down. She stays in it with him. Um, uh, she's honored to be talking to a Jew, but Jesus is, um, going to get a little preachy, a little, uh, a little pokey here. Um, so we're, we've ended, Jesus has said, give me a drink. Um, she said, how could you even associate with me? Um, so we're going to pick up at verse 10. Would somebody read 10 to, um, what did I say, 15? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 10 to 15. John Small. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. This is too good. This (laughs) is just too good. Holy smokes. All right, my question. What do you make of this image of living water? What do you make of this image of living water? Um, so I'll talk, I'm going to be shorter on this section, um, just cognizant of time. I'm interested in what we do um, with this, this image. It's really interesting language in this gospel. Um, uh, there's a master's thesis in here about Christ and the sacraments. I just got to point it out. Um, if in the Greek, in verse 4, Jesus, it says that Jesus sat down. The word is, is better translated font at the font. Um, mm. He sat down at the font and that's where he had a discourse with um, this Samaritan. Now, I don't know about you guys, what you're expecting at this point in the story after we took a breath after verse nine, um, I could have kind of seen this going one of two ways. I could have seen a kind of dressing down um, from Jesus and this, it just gets contentious and they remember who they are. And it, it, uh, um, I can also see it taking a romantic turn. Um, boy meets girl at well, really strong theme in the old Testament. Um, uh, you'll, you'll get that in two different places in, in Genesis um, uh, who was it? Isaac and Rebecca. Um, later, Jacob 
um, uh, and a lot of social connections happen. The fact that they're both alone um, is interesting to me. Um, it wouldn't be uncommon for this to begin as a kind of romantic story. I mean, I, I, there's, a, there's a theme, again, calling back to the Old Testament. Um, in ancient literature, um, there's so many examples of kind of pupil being drawn to, to master or teacher. My kind of favorite from uh, the Greek philosophical world is uh, Alcibiades and Socrates. Remember the great ancient philosopher Socrates, he's got this pupil Alcibiades, who's this beautiful young strapping boy. Um, and Alcibiades is attracted to his teacher. Yeah, that's, that's what's was common in, in the Greek world. And Socrates took that attraction and he didn't meet it. He philosophized about it. And he said, let's raise this up and make this about virtue. Um, they had this Socratic dialogue uh, where he raised, raised this erotic energy up to a higher level. Is that going on here? Hmm. Might be a thread. Might be a thread. I mean, I, I don't want to write it off, but I can't help. But as I finish verse nine, I'm thinking, hmm, what are the dynamics? What are the tensions here? Um, Maybe I'm not going to push that. Um, it again is, is a curious thing. And I think it becomes even more curious in the next chunk when they start talking about husbands, um, and marital status. Um, I want us to key in on this water image. Um, she's, she's, um, come to the, come to the well. Jesus doesn't have, uh, 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 a jug with him anyway to fetch water. Um, she does. She doesn't have a way to draw down to the spring, to the living spring. She's just going to have to take the, uh, the water from on top. Um, and she's, of course, amazed at this prospect of getting fresh water. Oh, my goodness. Um, I think we take that for granted. First century world, fresh water, uh, clean water. That's what she's looking for. And that's what she thinks Jesus is talking about. Um, but Jesus is talking about something else. Um, he's talking about a water that's welling up to eternal life. In some ways he, he, he says here, well, Jacob gave you this water and Jacob gave you this well, a well might be better translated as a cistern, um, a cistern that holds water, maybe rainwater, um, but a well or a spring or a font has a living source underneath it. Um, and Jesus is saying, I'm that living spring, or I'm going to give you that living spring of water. Um, it's amazing the mutuality right here. Jesus is thirsty. And so is she. They share this lovely human need for hydration and notice that Jesus raises her up to the higher degree, to the higher thirst. Now, I, 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 I pause here and say, Jesus isn't always the best conversationalist. Sometimes he gets asked a question and then he preaches a sermon. And, you know, you can imagine the interlocutor just being like, 
what, um, uh, but notice again, rhetorically, what's, what's going on here. Um, so what do we make of this image of living water? Um, you know, I, I, I was thinking about this. I was talking to David this week and, um, you know, we were talking about, um, you know, if you're on the highway driving along, it's Sunday morning and you pass Living Water Church on your right, you're not, well, you're happy you're going to be driving past. We don't see too many Living Water Episcopal churches. <laughs> um, uh, Living Water Church. Hmm. Now, I mean, and, uh, baptism, right? So, so I said there's font imagery here. Um, Jesus is sitting by the font. Again, if we take a kind of theological sacramental reading, we've got the, we've got the baptismal font. Well, we baptize from a bowl. Is that water living? What does it mean? What do you think it means? And, I, and I'm, you know, guys, I, I'm, I'm playing and wrestling with this image um, and I don't have an answer. Um, you know, I, I can tell you what my kind of Sunday school brain says. Um, it's Thursday evening, so I'm not going to go there. Um, uh, but what do you what do you make of this image of living water that the, the literal translation here is leaping up within you to eternal life? Water that's gushing, uh, leaping up. Um, comes to mind when you when you hear when you hear that phrase. What do you think Jesus is saying? Water leaping up to eternal life. What's he What's he getting at here? Flow of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. The thing that's interesting about that is that it comes back again and again and again within us. There's your you're springing up, you're leaping up, you're perpetual. Mm -hmm. I think something uh, strikes me. I was brought up, as I told you before, in a Welsh Baptist church. And the Welsh Baptist church always had a tank at the front that was covered with wood and it was uncovered for a baptism. So when I was baptized, I, I stood in the tank and was fully immersed by the minister. And so I think to me, the water of baptism uh, meant a great deal. Yes. I was drowned. Oh, but yeah. God, okay, guys, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die. Sorry, I've, I've got to kind of provoke here, but... Um, <laughs> You know, we get the little shell. We get it on the top of the head. The water is nice and lukewarm. Don't can't can't be too hot or too cold. Um, run it over the top of the head. Um, get them a little wet, but we've got a towel right there. Let's clean that head off. But um, think about some traditions who baptize in a river. <laughs> Yes. Closer to what Barbara did. 
What if we had <laughs> baptism at St. Anne's at, uh, at Walden Pond or at Sudbury River? That, that so, would be quite A brother, we're out there, you know, where they go down to the river. And, and we've actually sung that, that, uh, that uh, song in our church, going down to the river. And uh, it's a real, you know, it's, a, it's haunting when you think about going down to the river to get the gospel song. Yeah. Well, it can be shocking. It can be a real awakening. The water could be very cold. And it could really be, you know, meant to, to jumpstart you. Shock. Yeah. Shock, shock, absolutely. Shock, thank you. How about an undertow? That's really scary. I almost died in one. That one second panic, we can all remember being a kid. Um, okay, well, keep this image with you. Um, next time you're at the, on your sailboat or kayaking um, at the beach, heck, even in the shower. <laughs> what does it mean that this, what does it mean that this water is living but more radical still, it's flowing out of you. Cleansing, nourishing, taking you places you couldn't ever expect. Um, play with that image this week. Um, I think John drops these images. Uh, John the poet um, drops these images for us and um, play with them. Okay, well, I'm mindful of time. I want to go ahead. We're going to do a quick dip into uh, to the water imagery, the quick dip into this last chunk of scripture. My big question that we're probably not going to have time to answer unless you all really want to stay on till 830, which, uh, you know, this is, this is, happy hour for me. Um, uh, my, my, my big question for you in this last reading is what does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth in an age without a temple? What does that mean? Zoom. Zoom. That's what Jesus was saying there. <laughs> yes. Get him. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So we'll, we'll, we'll live with that question. Um, it's a, it's a, um, uh, it's a provocative passage. Would somebody read 16 to 30 for us? And we'll dig into it briefly. All right. Um, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water. This translation is going to feel a little different. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or go on coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back here. The woman answered him saying, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right to say I have no husband. For you've had five men and the one you now have is not your husband. You spoke the truth there. The woman said to him, sir, I see you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, though you say that the place where people should worship is in Jerusalem. 
Jesus said, believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such are the worshipers whom the Father seeks. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah, the one called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will declare everything. Jesus said, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. At this point, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him speaking to a woman, but none of them asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar and went off to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who has told me everything I have ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and they made their way towards him. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Again, I think it's interesting to stop at points in scripture um, uh, and say, what do we expect here? What do we think would happen if we were, if we were just imagining this story, if we were watching the movie? Um, well, uh, my expectation is that Jesus would be pleased. There's someone who has faith. Um, someone who uh, is thinking about living water is in conversation with him. Um, well, Jesus is not pleased. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So um, verse 16, go and call your husband. Yeah. Not, not. So why does he say that? Because he knows what the answer is going to be, and he wants it to come from her. Okay. He let, it's how he lets her know that he's who he is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, maybe Jesus has heard um, some of the some of the talk from the town. Um, maybe he knows. Um, maybe the word's gotten out about her um, home life. Go call your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. You're right. You've had five. How does he know that? This is one of those places in scripture where um, commentators have a lot of fun. How does Jesus know something so personal? Um, Jesus. <laughs> yes he's jesus <laughs> as we can't go we can't that's we're now um yeah right right um so let me give you some options here um five husbands again no mistakes in john they're historical glitches chronological errors no mistakes um five husbands well um Maybe one commentator, Origen, says, um, well, there are five books to the Torah. Samaritans cut off their Judaism right after the Torah, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Maybe he's, he's doing a kind of Jewish Samaritan inside Job. Interesting. Um, later scholar wants to say something like, well, Samaritans had five gods. 
and um, worshiping other gods is a form of idolatry. It's a form of adultery. And Jesus says, let's go talk about those gods. Um, interesting. Only problem is the Samaritans have seven gods. <laughs> now, Josephus, other people will come back and say, well, you could condense them to five, you know, um, um, maybe. Um, the funny, the funny reading is, uh, you know, uh, this, this German scholar, um, Paulus is his last name. Uh, you know, he says that, um, as Jesus was, uh, was trudging, was trekking out to the, to the well, um, somebody hollered out, watch out Jesus or you'll be number six. <laughs> um, right. We don't know. We don't know how Jesus, how Jesus knows this. Is he a prophet? Is he a seer? Um, John certainly wants us to think that she certainly wants to, um, wants that's, that's what her perception is. Whoa. Somebody who, who sees me, um, sees me to the core, um, an uncomfortable place to be in the presence of a Jew. Um, again, we should admire this, this lady. She hangs in there. I, she might've been tempted to run after he brings this up. Um, but she stays in there. She stays in the light. The light exposes the darkness. She hangs in. Powerful. Um, <clears throat> Lots of interesting stuff here. I've got this question that I want to kick around with you. There's um, about the temple. A couple of things just to note before we talk about that. Jesus says here, salvation is from the Jews. Now, is Jesus being a little, is this a Jewish kind of looking down the nose on the Samaritan? I think this is a verse if, um, that's important in John's gospel. There aren't too many places where Jesus is speaking uh, fondly of Judaism. Yeah. Well, David will lead us next week in that conversation. Um, um, there's, there's reason to think this verse was added maybe a little bit later to help fix some of the anti-Judaism in the gospel. Regardless, um, Jesus here says salvation's from the Jews. Um, it's an important statement. Um, it had to have felt weird for a Samaritan to hear that. Um, but notice how he breaks it down. Um, he says an hour is coming when you won't worship on the Temple Mount. You won't worship on Mount Gerizim. The mountain is about to be behind us. Radical statement, right? Um, if you're in the ancient world, one of the most important things is your understanding of land, your understanding of a holy site on a holy piece of land. We see this today. There is holy land in Israel. Um, if you want to know God's blessing, you've got a few acres. Remember, these are displaced, dispossessed peoples. To have land um, is powerful. And for Jesus, for Jesus to say, well, worship is about to be removed from 
land, from space, from a restricted space. He also talks about time. He says the time is coming. The time is being fulfilled. Um, this is the moment um, when the Jewish Samaritan squabbles end. Remember Paul's verse, in Jesus Christ, there are no Jews or Greeks, Jews or Samaritans, male or female. Um, so he says, um, so again, he's fulfillment of space, fulfillment of time. There's so much to say um, about this. Um, God is calling people to worship in spirit and in truth, not going to a holy site, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. That's a gnomic phrase. Um, it's a phrase that I think resonates ripples throughout John's gospel. Um, what do we think that, what do we think that means? I'll just say one, one quick, one quick comment just before we go into that, Paul, I want to hear um, where you're going with this. Um, notice here that Jesus is, is John is trying to refocus the temple onto Jesus. He's trying to say Jesus is the new temple. Um, remember he's writing this in a hundred, he's writing this in a hundred AD. The temple in Jerusalem is torn to the ground in 70. Gerizim does not have a holy site. They'll build, they'll build one later, but they don't have one now. Um, John's trying to re-narrate this temple theology. What's radical is he's saying the temple and all of its purity is judged on how close it will get to the impure. I think that's part of the theology going on here. Um, here's the Jewish temple. Here's the word made flesh, tabernacled among us out in the desert among the Samaritan woman, there in the shadow of Mount Gerizim. So um, um, what does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? What do you think that means? Another one of those just <laughs> high watt images. I think it means uh you carry the temple within you, wherever you're standing, wherever your heart is, wherever your thoughts are, that you're there, you're centered. That I think is, is a combination of the two words, spiritual and real. Mm -hmm. And what I would, I totally agree, David. And what I was interested in is um, we've talked about Jesus going to a place of trauma. We've talked about if you dip into a well, you don't necessarily have to go all the way to the bottom and get the, like the holy pure stuff. It's like the stuff at the top is fine. It might be living. Um, it it kind of, to me, it's, it's kind of like Jesus is saying, deal with what you, deal with what you have in front of you. Um, and that's, like that's plenty to to uh to work with that's that's what comes to mind mm -hmm. and the reason the reason it's interesting to me is that this chapter that we're reading some of the other parts of john seem to be so like uh 
philosophical, theological. And this is just like the real stuff that you're dealing with, you can find stuff to work with. Does that make any sense? Raw. It's raw. Yeah. John, what do you think? John Small. That line 24 that you're talking, verse 24 that you're talking about, worshiping in spirit and truth, to me is linked to the line, two lines later, line 26, when Jesus says, I am he. I, I love the way he is so direct and reveals himself and is saying, hey, you know, do you know who I am? Look at, you're looking at him. Here I am. Mm -hmm. So to me, worshiping in spirit and truth is connected to the fact that what, what, he wants you, what he wants her to see is that he is the Messiah and that that is the way to, to truth. Mm. Yeah, I like it. Through his living water, are you saying? Or through belief in him? Through his living water, are you saying? Or through his belief in him? Both, both. Mm -hmm. Both. And I think John continues to put that theme through all the stories in John. And that's the thing that's so mysterious and beautiful about this gospel. You know, it's not he went here, when he did that, 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 that. These stories are, I think, so beautifully mysterious that we could talk about them forever. And still be nourished by them. They're almost a living war in themselves. Can I just refer back to that line 26? Um, uh -huh. That's verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I find this the most subversive thing in the whole, in the whole story. That he's revealing himself as the Messiah for the first time to... A woman of Samaria, you know, all, all you, that he's, the, he's coming out as the Messiah at this point in the gospel. And to your earlier question about why tell the story now, I think that's the reason that I'm going to, I'm going to reveal myself to what on paper would be the most unworthy and unvaluable soul that I could conceive of. And here I am saying, I am he. It's like he's revealing, he, he's revealing himself to the person who needs to hear it. Right. But in, and in doing that, he's revealing himself to all of us that need to hear it. But no matter how unworthy we may, we may feel or believe we are. What's interesting to me, Lisa, I think that's so well said, is that he doesn't say that at the beginning. He says it after 26 verses of conversation. Um, and in some ways, she's having this progressive revelation. Again, like Nicodemus, um, but, but more condensed here. Um, first, she sees him as a prophet. Um, she's asking questions about him and his relationship with Jacob. She thinks of him as a prophet, and then she she pivots to messianic language, um, and then here's this here's this revelation. Um, it's interesting to me. Um, maybe um, 
I think one of the most beautiful lines in the gospel, something we could, we could miss is um, the, this, the, the woman leaves her jug and she runs to her Samaritan friends. Who are these people? Does she have friends? She runs to the Samaritans. Um, and she says those three words, come and see. We've heard those in John's gospel. Um, John 1, Jesus says, come and see. Here she is, the first disciple that gets it. She leaves her livelihood. She runs in right to the shame, right to those people who know she's Hester Pran. And she says, come and see. Um, I think it's, I think it's powerful. I think she's a, I think she's a powerful woman. She has a lot of agency in this passage. Jesus draws out that agency. Um, I think it's, uh, I think it's beautiful. I'm I'm thinking um, last thought here, um, unless anyone wants to jump in in the spirit and in truth. Um, I think it's interesting what the church is learning being separated from the temple. (laughs) Um, I'm still asking. Isn't there a wider story, though, Garrett? You know, I mean, you, you, you expand this story to the spirit of Christianity moving into areas of, of danger and, and um, you know, the other side and opening it up. You know, to the to the living word, um, is the giant community trying to give us that story that it's possible to see this in other dimensions? You know, that's I think that's what you're asking, isn't it? That there is a story within a story here. It's interesting to me how there are kind of two camps that talk about how, how this, how this question of church without a temple is, is going. Um, there's the, there's the kind of more traditional camp that really misses the building and, um, and talks about church being in the church, in the building. No, I don't think there's anything. Um, look, I'm, I'm all for Sunday morning and hearing the sound of voices raised. Um, there's the other camp, kind of the progressive, all my young millennial friends are like, finally, the church is being the church. They're out there, they're serving, they're helping, they're connecting, all those things. We're, we're out of the building, so to speak. Um, I'm kind of looking to thread that a little bit. Um, I, I, if I use this story, I kind of wonder, gosh, I'm feeling so dang preachy right now. This is not good. I, I, I want to see the church as the, as the well that holds the living water. And the point is not the building, it's the living water in it. And if we forget that, the building has gotten in the way. And I think Jesus says, detach from that. Um, he uproots us from place. He uproots us from the way we think about time. Living water. What does it mean to be a community of living water? That's well, COVID has given us a gift. Yeah. This COVID time has given us a gift to understand that, I think. We're all on Zoom, separated in our own. Well, I think 
the fact that the, 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 that the Jews lost their temple, the temple was destroyed. The Samaritans lost their mountain, that, was, that temple there was destroyed. And yet they had to go on and did go on. And some of them thrived and some of them didn't. They went and, you know, they formed, they entered Christianity or some other forms of worship. But it doesn't, that the, I think the point is that the church, the building is not the center of the universe, the center of, of the focus is the center of the focus should be out there where the spirit is. Well, maybe the question is, guys, how do we become living water church? <laughs> Honestly, I I'll think us we'll never arrive. We'll never get there, no. but we can always try. I, I think we're on the way. I didn't I don't think we're the river, but I think we are certainly springs. All of us are. Comes out all the time. And we nourish part, each other. Dan? I was going to just say, I think part of the message I'm getting from these passages is, is the living church, look for it. The living water, the spirit, the church, look for it in the least among us. You know, that she was the messenger and went back to these people who had wouldn't believe her anyway, but they still followed her. Mm. Come and see. And, you know, I think, uh, I don't know, think about that. But I don't think it's a brick and mortar that's, building. That's a mystery, yeah. Beautiful mystery. All right, Suzanne. Uh, I'm always thinking home. about that we're, we're created in God's image and our, we are the temple of God. So each of us individually is a temple. And whenever two or three together, are gathered together, no matter where, or outside, or on Zoom, that's the living church. Couldn't have said it better myself. Agree. Aren't we 75% water? <laughs> Get out of here. Get out of here. Water. <laughs> what if we are the living water? Yeah. We are 3% cooties. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you. Um, as you wrestle with this passage, feel free to shoot me any questions or thoughts. Um, and uh, um, we'll be back next week. Dr. Urian's taking us away with, uh, we're looking at John 8. Um, I think we'll dig into one of those master theses that is tough, um, anti-Judaism. So it'll be, a, it'll be a really good one. Look forward to that. And um, thanks for wrestling with the text tonight. Um, so blessings, blessings on your evening and, um, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.